The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, pre-chorus. And we're live. It's it is Wednesday, February 16th, 6.03 p.m. Eastern Time. We're starting an hour late, um, but it's worth it because we have Alex Damos back with us today, um, who looking, giving, I know he did this and planned this for me because he knows Hunt for Red October is my favorite movie of all time. And we're discussing Russia. In like, you know, so it's relevant, even though Sean Connery isn't from Russia, he's from, in that movie. It's, he's, it's shocking. He's, you can't tell he's he's Scottish in that movie. It's just he disappears <laughs> into the role completely. Yes. Oh, God, I could go on and on. Anyways, uh, you were you were looking like you, you came off a fishing boat in um, in Lithuania. With my, uh, with my uncle, yes. With your uncle, yes. His grandfather, his grandfather. Um, sorry, I'm sorry. GDF is like a little terrified. How, I can't remember the case names for anything that I teach, but I could give you this. Who, 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 seriously, who can remember? Um, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. it's terrible. But we're, um, Alex, you and I were kind of, I just sent you a message because we hadn't talked in a while and I was wondering how you were doing and your exact things were like the entire cybersecurity world is at DEFCON 2. Um, yeah. And I was kind of like, oh, of course there are. I hadn't even kind of thought about that, but because I've been kind of following the normal state politics of it all. Um, but then I was like, this would be a great conversation to have about like kind of what's happening behind the scenes. And so, yeah, I mean, if you want to just kind of read us in, I've done a little bit of like trying to look up what's going on. And it mostly seems like DDoS attacks and other types of stuff. But like what's happening? Right. So, um, so first off, uh, you know, just to say if you know, uh, keep on hearing different things, but it does seem like the assessment is still from lots of people in the know, uh, that while, uh, Russian plans have possibly been delayed partially, you know, due to kind of a, a really smart and aggressive counter disinformation strategy, um, from the white house this time around, um, compared to 2014, um, it still something's going to happen. So what I first want to say is like, you know, we're going to talk about cyber. That's what I do. Um, and that's our area of expertise. But, you know, if there's any kind of military action, uh, obviously this is going to be a humongous humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, we've not seen an invasion at this scale in, in Europe since 1939. Um, and uh, having two modern militaries duke it out uh, in open unrestricted ground warfare is something that we have very few examples of. Um, there was the, the uh, you know, a somewhat more limited example between Azerbaijan and Armenia, um, which itself was a very bloody war. And we have examples of what combined arms plus air cover can do in Syria. Um, but uh, this is going to be something pretty horrible, right? So uh, I just want to lay out like all the cyber stuff is important, um, but uh, I, it, you know, it takes a second seat to like the very real fear that people are living under in, in, different parts of Ukraine right now, um, as well as in, in bordering states. Um, so yeah, on 
the cyber side. Everybody's a little worried. You know, nothing that interesting's happened yet. But if you roll the clock back and you look at previous Russian operations, there's often a hybrid element, right? The, the Russians have been very smart about the building out of offensive cyber capabilities in direct support of their military aims. A lot of this comes out of the GRU, right? So there's three major intelligence agencies in Russia. Um, the FSB and the SVR are the descendants of the KGB. So the FSB is kind of the domestic secret police part of the KGB. Um, and so they do a lot of hacking, uh, but a lot of that hacking is in around understanding what's going on domestically, as well as some stuff around the oil and gas industry, which FSB has some links to. Um, SVR is like the Americans, right? So there's the overseas spies um, for Russia. Those SVR hackers are the surgeons. They're the scalpel. Um, and they are very, very careful and very, very good uh, at what they do. Uh, example of that is the attack against all these organizations of which SolarWind uh, was a part um, uh, and that was an intelligence operation that caused no damage and that they got away with for quite a long period of time. The GRU is part of the main intelligence directorate of the Kremlin. They have very good offensive hackers. They are, if, um, uh, if the SVR is the scalpel, uh, then the GRU is the sledgehammer, right? And they are much more aggressive and don't have a lot of interest in reducing kind of, um, uh, you know, the impact of what they do and they don't really care about getting caught. Um, and so, uh, you know, this, these kinds of operations are generally attributed to GRU linked groups, in which case, you know, the kinds of things that we've seen in the past is we've seen attacks to punish Ukrainian companies and punish those who do business in Ukraine. I think what we also will see in this case is, you know, the Ukrainian military is obviously highly dependent on their, Logistic, logistics infrastructure within the country, as well as their domestic communications infrastructure. So in any battle, I expect that you'll have immediate attacks against anybody related to logistics. So that's the rail system, electricity, water, sewage systems, um, kind of all of the, the systems that allow us to live uh, modern uh, 21st century lives. Um, will be considered legitimate targets. Uh, and then anything related to communications, right? Like the, uh, you know, you'll have kind of your traditional battle space uh, uh, attempts to jam communications and, and, and such. Um, but then in the modern world, this also probably means attacks against both physical and cyber attacks against the cell phone network, against uh, fiber optic networks and the like. Um, since, you know, fiber optics, lots of them in the ground in Ukraine, not something you can jam remotely, but something that there is a history of attacking electronically. And actually the United States has some history there of us doing a bunch of that kind of, of work in Syria um, using offensive capabilities against uh, communication networks. Um, so I do think there, there will be a bunch of stuff going on in the how that affects people outside of Ukraine is, is still really open to debate. And I think part of it depends on what the escalation ladder looks like here. Right. Um, uh, we don't have a good history of understanding the cyber versus kinetic escalation ladder and how those two things will interplay, especially then with the sanctions escalation ladder. Right. Like Biden has said over and over again, he does not want to get into a shooting war in Ukraine. NATO tanks are not going to roll in to the rescue of the Ukrainians. Um, but what is quite likely is that we are we could have snap sanctions put in place very, very quickly. I expect the White House is working right now on what different sanction packages look like with our allies um, so that within hours of an invasion that those sanctions would be put in place. How would the Russians re respond to that? Partially with their own economic sanctions. Um, Russia is an extremely important supplier of a bunch of different materials and metals uh, for which there are not... Uh, 
in some cases, those, the, the, the second biggest supplier is Ukraine, right? Uh, based upon geography. So there are some interesting opportunities there, but then also you can see a response to any sanctions to be cyber attacks um, and attacks against American companies, American banks, um, or uh, organizations in our allies who have been a little bit, you know, the Germans and the French have been a little bit uh, wishy-washy uh, in, in their attempts here. Um, and so if, if your goal is to is to help the Germans to make them believe that is not within their economic interest to be part of a sanctions regime, then attacks against multinationals that have a big German presence, um, as well as as uh, other parts of the German economy, would totally be in scope. So, yeah, I mean, I think um, the, a lot of people are kind of trying to pay attention to what that means. Uh, you know, not Petya is a great example of coming out of kind of the the last time Russia invaded Ukraine of the kind of attack you could see, which took down Mursk took down Merck, um, took down a bunch of, of uh, very important organizations. Um, one of the interesting things that's happened in the last couple of months is there's been a quieting of activity from the ransomware side. And the initial attribution was that, oh, Putin's trying to demonstrate that uh, Putin's trying to demonstrate that, like, you know, he can do a deal. He can be good. Uh, you know, if, if you if you're good with him, that he will reduce the pressure from the ransomware side. That's possible. Another possibility is that Russia is currently consolidating their control of their ransomware actors because that would give them a very strong, somewhat deniable capability to cause lots and lots of damage, right? So not Petya was was traced back to the GRU instantly in a situation where you have real ransomware actors who have acted already in the past in a damaging manner, and all of a sudden they're targeting targets of opportunity. That's an interesting opportunity for like Russia to go up the cyber escalation ladder in a way that's somewhat deniable and might reduce the chance of a cyber command response. Um, that is the other big question we have right now is how does the US respond? We have never seen kind of a full scale um, attack from cyber command. Like, as much as as Nakasone was let off the leash a little bit against certain actors um, during the, the run up to 2020, uh, and uh, you know um, in Syria, we have never seen the United States utilize our the full capability of of our offensive cyber capabilities against an adversary. And there is certainly a path in which we get to that part of the escalation ladder, in which it is not just sanctions against Russian companies, but Russian factories stop working, Russian power stops working. Um, that could very easily turn into a full-scale kinetic war. And so uh, how, how like, Biden with Nakasone and Blinken and his entire national security team manage that escalation ladder, I think is going to be pretty key. Okay. I have, like, a bunch of kind of... Sorry. Oh, that was rant. awesome. Yeah. No, no. I love <laughs> your rant. Like, okay. you're, like, uh, no, this is, that was awesome. And that's exactly what I asked you to do. Um, and I have, like, and Scott's going to take the first questions. I just have a clarifying question first. Which is you're you're like you're saying you're just using some terms and I am not familiar with terms of like warfare and everything else. I just want to like be super clear. I kind of wrote down some of them. So there's like the co communication. There's like all of these attacks would happen using the internet. Like that. Let's be clear. Like everything from an from a kinetic, a so-called kinetic war, an attack on infrastructure, an attack on like sewer systems, an attack on like all of these things would be cyber in some regard or digital in some regard that right. the thing that you're trying to get at with the kinetic is like a, a physical movement, like a, a infrastructure sure. level, a utility level. Right. But then you K kind of kinetic made is the euphemism we use for killing people effectively. 
So I'm sorry. So when we say kinetic, oh. we mean traditional military operations, right? So like when you but hear that's what I was yeah. okay. I was so I was okay, gonna yeah. ask that was basically I'm like, is that like meat war or is that like shutting or is that actually yeah. a step away from meat war? I guess no, so no, no. Can, when I talk about kinetic action, I'm sorry. I mean when we talk about the kinetic escalation ladder, we're talking about the traditional military escalation ladder, right? From that right. people have talked about since the Cold War era of you know border conflicts to uh, you know, uh, air air war to full on invasion to you know what what people call combined arms is um, a combination of a bunch of different techniques uh, on land, sea, and air that can be incredibly damaging. Sure. And this is like part of kind of the the twentieth century Soviet um, uh, plans for invasion of Europe. Uh, they still have a lot of capability. So I'm sorry. Yeah, when I say kinetic, I mean the actual military stuff that's going to kill people and destroy infrastructure and do horrible things. The big question is, is like, what's the interplay between the cyber and the kinetic? We don't really know. And there's all these Got people who have talked okay. about it. So like two, my colleagues here at Stanford, Amy Zieger, Herb Lynn, have written a lot about this, but we don't have any good examples of what happens on that ladder going up on both sides. Okay, that's perfect. That was basically what I wanted to say. And like, so like kinetic is like your classic and then like everything else on the cyber side is everything from like, like, and I just want to, the, the other side that I wanted to say is like, who this is aimed at, like all of these cyber attacks, like it's clear yeah. who, the, who the who kinetic war is going to kind of be aimed at, I think. Um, well, for right now it is. Um, but like the, 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 the cyber warfare, as you said, I mean, it doesn't have to be limited in any way to like to Ukraine or to to Russia necessarily. Like these That's can right. be against everyone and anyone that is allies with them or kind of trying to help them in some capacity. And so I just kind of want to be clear that like, are those all are this is the cyber side of those threats? Who is the most afraid of those right now? Like who are like would you would you aim those cyber threats at Ukraine or would you aim them at the people who are giving Ukraine guns? Right. So I think you do both. I think you target Ukraine to try to um, weaken Ukraine's defenses, right? So uh, the ability of the Ukrainian kind of command and control infrastructure is a lot of it is going to be based. You're going to have traditional military radios and such. And uh, Russia has a modern and significant electronic warfare capability to attack those. And then you have people use, utilizing the internet. Like one of the things we've seen in the wars of the 21st century is that traditional consumer electronics are in some cases much more useful than the stuff the military gives, right? Like even for our military, there's all these stories of, you know, the first days of Afghanistan, they had no real good way to contact Navy SEALs and such. So these guys are going in with like unclassified Iridium. Um, you know, they would go to the store and go buy satellite phones so they could call back. Um, like we have a, a lot, we have a lot of history of like the military grade stuff, not really working as well as modern communication. And so that means a situation like this, if you're Russia and you wanted to grade the ability of the Ukrainian government to function and for Ukrainian command and control between Kiev and the field, then you're going to be attacking the, the you're going to be attacking the mechanisms they're using. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean only cell phone towers that exist in Ukraine and Ukrainian cell networks? Probably not. A lot of Ukrainian cellular networks are actually run by European companies that are operating there, right? And so yeah. you immediately I have that. I was like, that can't right. be the case. Like, there's no way that Ukraine is doing their own cell phone networks. Like, no. No. And so you immediately bring in kind of European infrastructure providers who just happen to be providers of consumer. What are the services that you're using? If you're using WhatsApp, then that's an American provided service that the yeah. Ukrainians would be using day to day for their command and control. So I, I think that's one of the issues is, you know, in a modern war, we don't have a good example of a top tier adversary. Again, we have, we've had Azerbaijan and Armenia. Those are not countries 
that have these these kinds of capabilities. We have not seen a Russia or China or the United States um, operate of utilizing cyber in direct support of like a massive ground invasion. Um, and so seeing what that's like is actually really scaring people. So thank huh. you. That was that. No, that answered all my questions. Scott, go for it. Um, um, thank you. That was all. That was all extremely. Um, um, uh, useful and helpful. Thanks. Um, so I was just wondering whether you thought that it could, it's the, 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 it seems as though the common wisdom yesterday, the received view yesterday is, I mean, it was almost like a, like a logical fallacy of affirming the consequence. That is they say, if there's a ground invasion, you're gonna get a cyber attacks. Because you have cyber attacks, therefore there's a ground invasion. So that's a, like that's a fallacy. But it, it it seemed though that like if Putin were bluffing or trying to piss off the Ukrainians or trying to be really irritating um, uh, to hassle them, they would be doing what they're doing. And if they yeah. were preparing for invasion, they would be doing what they're doing. So it, there's no inference you can draw from the fact that they're doing what they're doing. Yet it felt like yesterday everyone was like announcing. Does, it, does that make sense? Well, I, so I think what you're saying, I mean, there's a lot of posturing right now, right? Like, I, I don't want to be the guy who's like, I know exactly what Vladimir Putin is thinking. I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, and unless you have a, a folder with a red cover that has intercepts of his like private conversations with people, I you're, think that's going to be hard to say. You're but, you're the cat. You're the captain of a new a Russian nuclear submarine. Right. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do it. Uh, don't. Oh. oh. <laughs> um, map right there. Like I just feel like anyway. You don't right, want to so specialize. I, we're sailing to history comrade um <laughs> right so I, I think so what does putin want i think there's there's a couple of different things one he wants to consolidate his control over the donbass and crimea russia is never giving crimea back it is absolutely strategically critical for them to have those bases on the black sea they are not going to give up that access um and so uh coming up and turning this from a uh you know, from a, a de facto to a de jure kind of ownership of a bunch of the land they took in 2014, I think is one of the goals. I think for the rest of Ukraine, what Putin would like is he'd like what he had before the revolutions. He would like to have a puppet government there like like he has in Belarus, right? Um, so if, if his goal is to do that, then he's got a lot of capability to utilize his massive military and these threats to destabilize Ukraine and to try to push it into doing something stupid and or the government falling, right? There's certainly, there's certainly a possibility that one of these days we're going to wake up and what the news is going to say that the entire Ukrainian cabinet and the president have all just landed in London, right? To go spend more, more time with their money. Um, and, um, and that then there will be some kind of struggle for power in which Putin can utilize his covert capabilities, his propaganda capabilities and his spies on the ground, of which FSB is kind of famously active in the former Soviet states, as you can imagine, um, that he would be able to manipulate things that the person who rises to power after all these Ukrainians, uh, after the current leaders flee, um, is a puppet of his and that would be a huge win and and he wouldn't have to kill anybody and he wouldn't and he wouldn't have taken any steps that would justify massive american and nato sanctions so i think it's quite possible that he is going to have a number of these feints where he withdraws comes back come to ratchet up the psychological pressure and to 
make the, the Ukrainians feel, and especially the Ukrainians at the top, that they absolutely have no choice. At some point, though, he's going to have to go, right? He, he can't hold something like 60% of their of their military manpower on the borders of Ukraine. Like, this costs them money to, to stretch their supply lines those ways. And you can't have an army deployed in, in cold weather in tents forever, I'm guessing, right? Even right. Russians don't, don't, don't want to. And so at some point, he's going to have to take some kind of action. But I think he's got long, he has a much longer timeline to do that than we're thinking of. And he has a long, much longer timeline, to be frank, than the American, the, the, the American media will pay attention, right? Like, you know, we've got another mm -hmm. dozen or so news cycles in this before they all start to start talking about something else stupid. Um, and, uh, and I think there's quite possibility that he plays his game until you have the West somewhat distracted. And then when he makes a move, it's almost kind of been built into people's expectations um yeah. and the odds of biden being able to get you know especially the germans and the french behind us have decreased right it, it, just one more comment so these type of cyber activities are coming on the heels of at least well i mean seven years of um of harassment um largely but not exclusively through through digital means, this is not like Ukraine is not. I mean, you mentioned not Petya, but like Ukraine is not. This is the question. That I, I, let me formulate it as a question: Is the kind of activity that we're seeing now um, uh, so much greater than ha we've seen over the course of seven years, when things have been quite bad at various points? That there's reason to think that this we we're we're, we're getting we're edging closer to uh, kinetic war, uh, right? I, so I mean, to, since we're this whole thing we're going to do in pop culture references, I think like the other thing that applies here is that chaos is a ladder, right? That um, you're right. Like ever since 2014, things have been crazy for Ukrainians. Um, and what Putin is showing that he has the ability to turn things up from a psychological perspective, from an economic perspective, and from like threatening people's lives. And for the you know Ukrainians are very tough people. Um, I, uh, I I once took uh, a a friend of Ukrainian descent out shooting. I guess she was actually born there, um, but emigrated as, as a little girl, um, and she was quite good with a shotgun, even though it was her first time. And she said, uh, uh, you know, well. You know, my grandmother taught me a little bit about shotguns because that's what she used to kill Nazis, right? Mm. And you're like, like most Ukrainians have stories like that, right? Um, so you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, I skied um, when I was a little kid, right? like, <laughs> um, and I know shotguns. I, I went duck hunting, but like that's different than your like Nazi killing uh, grandmother, right? So Ukrainians are tough people, but they can't. They don't not want to live forever under the threat of imminent physical harm, and so I think there is the possibility of. Putin turning up the pressure over and over and over again um, with the goal of destabilizing Ukraine and, and winning without a shot, right? Um, this is already having massive economic impacts. You're starting to see yes. flights get canceled. Airlines do not want to risk flying in and out of an eminent war zone. Um, you know, one of the things, so, I, you know, I, I work here at Stanford. I have a consulting side and work with a bunch of companies. Lots of multinational companies are very rightfully shutting down all their Ukrainian operations. Now, they're also, in some cases, shutting down their Russian operations. So this is not cost-free to Russia, right? Like, you can't act in this way and then have, you know, German companies, French companies, British companies, you know, especially and especially American companies, just act as if things are normal. And so there is an economic cost to Putin as well, for sure. Um, 
but like the cost to Ukraine is much higher. Uh, and and I wouldn't be surprised if we see more, you know, not Petya was specifically targeted at punishing Ukrainian companies. It, you know, for those of you who don't know, NotPetya was a worm that looked like it was ransomware, but there was no actual way to pay the ransom and to unlock it. It was just a weapon. And the way the weapon started is it was embedded in software that is effectively the TurboTax of Ukraine. So any company that operates in Ukraine had to have at least one computer in their finance department with the software installed so they could file their taxes to operate legally. And so it was like a great way to demonstrate, hey, if you're going to do business there, you have a significant amount of risk, right? Um, and and so with that in the back of their minds, you've got people being evacuated. You've got serious economic impact in Ukraine right now. And so, you know, can they sustain this for 30, 60, 90 days? Probably. Could they sustain this for a year? Probably not. And and so the, I think that part of the question is, is how much can Russia pull this out before we get bored and Ukrainians get just so fed up with the inability? Because the other thing that's going on right now is these people are living under crushing risk and mm-hmm. their leaders can't do anything about it. Right. So that's not like a great feeling. Um, does it matter that Putin's actually the bad guy? You know, from a democratic perspective, people are sort of fed up with the, the inability of their government to protect them. So this- Yes, Deirdre, it did use Eternal Blue uh, uh, as, as well as it did a bunch of um, use of like LSASS, uh, LS, uh, local uh, creds. It would steal like local NTLM creds to move uh, east west on, on Windows networks. So one of the things that I would like to just kind of ask a slightly harebrained question to all of you um, is there's, and I'm glad you touched on the commercial aspect of this again and how it's multinational companies that are having a lot of the impact in both like distributing the information that that different countries use and also what is being targeted. How are multinational companies not somewhat a de facto treaty in and of themselves because a lot is made of state actors going into international treaties and them being a way of defense. How are these commercial beings not somewhat just functionally a treaty? Because at some point, if you disrupt enough commerce, you could say that that, or there is an argument at least, that that would trigger some right of self-defense depending on what the impacts of that are. So if they targeted the defense ministry and that for some reason caused harm to the people, a state actor would theoretically have their own right of self-defense. And I, I just question, am I completely harebrained here? Or is this like something that has yet to take shape? Are we thinking that at some point the liability will shift to the commercial actors rather than the states to protect the individuals who are in harm's way? And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, this is a great question. Scott, do you have like, do you have any type? I mean, I will go for it. Either of you. Um, I, I believe Alex is the guest and contractually <laughs> obligated to him. I mean, so we're already seeing a situation where companies are taking responsibility for their people, for their employees mm-hmm. and their executives. Um, and, uh, and so that is true. Like they're they're, but you know they don't have the ability to militarily protect these folks. What they do is they have right. money to get them on flights, perhaps right. private flights, um, out. Uh, and like, you know, um, we, I mean, I, I think it's less relevant to this. I think for the tech industry overall, we actually are interesting and in, heading into an interesting phase where um, employees on the ground have become a tool of manipulation by states to try to force their will yes. on tech companies to inf- to change how they act um 
all of these countries and India is like the most prominent here uh, that India has been like actively involved and effectively threatening employees on the ground to try to change content moderation strategies in a way that is beneficial to the BJP. Um, And they now have like a hostage law and a bunch of countries are passing hostage laws where you have to designate like this person in this country, you can go ahead and arrest them if you don't like us. Right. Um, And so I I do think in that kind of context, this is becoming a bigger thing. I think it's less in the Russia, Ukraine, where it's like, Mm -hmm you know, 150,000 troops on the, the border and thousands of tanks. Like there's not that much you can do um, to protect your employees other than to see down the road and get them out. And and a bunch of companies I, I know of have already gotten their people out. Yeah, just uh, fo- fo- just Kate, just following up on that. I read a story, it was a couple of days ago, how the InfoSec community was um, collaborating to help Ukrainian companies um, and entities defend themselves themselves. Um, do, do, you, do you have any um, like kind of um, insight in, uh, into what is happening or whether it's, I mean, it's like, how do you defend a country the size of Ukraine? Um, uh, but if you knew anything about that. I will add one thing to Alex's point just really quickly, which is also just that like there is something very different from companies' duties to their own employees and like them being kind of, and their companies continuing to being able to be accessible, especially Mm -hmm. if they're speech platforms or financial services platforms or like anything of of that kind of level um, in the country despite massive cyber attacks. Um, And or I mean, or if there is kinetic war, if there is going to be actual attacks on kind of the yeah. the cell phone towers, the infrastructure, the like the servers, and so like I just I do think that like I think that this is very much a Jack Goldsmith, Tim Wu kind of who controls the internet. I do think that there is you can use that in two ways. You can say that nation states play out kind of their diplomatic war through trying to push their policies and soft pedal like jawboning, basically their policies into the policies of the companies. But you can also kind of play it out in this type of way, which is that these companies are so necessary to kind of like so necessary to daily life in these companies that cutting people off from them will bring about kinetic war in a way that is very... um, or bring about like massive hardship in a way that will like people will become so disrupted that they will that like kinetic war will be all but inevitable. And so it's like they do not have like like Alex is exactly right. I wouldn't like the thing with treaties is like treaties have teeth. The teeth mm-hmm. is your armies, right? Like and like they're you know like Facebook doesn't have an army, thank God. But there's like, <laughs> they have but a there is, I know. But like, um, but I do think, but I do think that like, I do think that also this is gonna be a norm shifting moment depending on how it goes in terms of what people think of. Again, we've been in this highly tech back, in the US, a highly tech backlash kind of period for a long time. So the rot, I don't know if you agree with this, Alex, but like, I could see this being kind of like another almost like Egypt type of moment, even though there was like a lot that happened in Egypt that it was underreported and misreported. But like the general sentiment being one that like that in which multinational communications based companies end up being kind of the saviors in some way of democracy or like trying to get messages out or protecting people. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, maybe I the, you know, the, the, what makes this less complicated for the companies is, is that Russia is not economically important at all to them. Um, so, you know, uh, 
a lot of these companies are available, these platforms are available in Russia, but they have no employees there. And so they can't sell ads there and such. And so they basically operate at a loss in Russia. Um, and that's fine with them because it's like, you know, Russia's got like half the GDP of California, right? Like it is just not like a large commercial market from that kind of measurement. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think less so in this, I think in these other kinds of conflicts, I think in situations where you have, again, like India, Pakistan, or, um, you know, situations in the Middle East where you're going to have companies that kind of bend to the will. Uh, and unfortunately, like, uh, the trend right now for the companies is effectively to give up on government control. Like the, the big breaking point was NetsDG in Germany, that for a long period of time, the companies really resisted being pushed by countries to change how their content moderation policies. They, what they would do is they'd hold back unless you had a specific court order, right? And so there's this long history of, you know, court orders in Germany to take down pro-Nazi content and stuff, and that's fine. But um, uh, what, what happened in NetsDG is that Germany said, hey, all you companies, you have to enforce our law proactively. You have to actually change your policies as they're enforced. And they had the power of Germany and the entire EU behind it. And effectively, the companies caved and said, okay, we'll do it. And the policy since then has been one, like we're just going to kind of give in and follow the law around the world. Um, and there's been much less backbone kind of stand up on behalf. And so, um, uh, you know, like I, I think like the, the battle, unfortunately, like the Facebook is not the Facebook that stood up in 2011 against each other. No, like, I, it, is a, it is a Facebook that has been beaten up um, by governments. And, and unfortunately, like well-meaning people in Germany and the United States have kind of if you're a politician, you push for supremacy of politicians over platforms. And that sounds great in your own country, but it doesn't sound great. So you don't really think about the impact is elsewhere. And we're yep. seeing that over and over again, um, especially in the EU, where the EU is passing laws that then when adopted by Russia or Turkey or Vietnam has a very different impact. But it's very difficult for the companies to say, we're going to listen to EU law and avoid Vietnamese law. So for the most part, they have given up on kind of standing up for human rights. It's it's an unfortunate, it's actually a really sad situation. The, the one the one caveat to that is on data access to individuals, they're still holding a line and that's because of ECBA and SCA because there actually is a countervailing law in the United States that makes it, that gives them possible criminal liability if they give data to companies. Um, and so like, if uh, or to other countries. So if we want the companies to come back, then we need to think about creating countervailing pro-human rights standards in US law that create a conflict of law scenario where they have an argument. Right now, if it's completely and totally legal for you to do whatever you know, the Tur uh, that ever Turkey wants uh, for the Kurds and there's no reason to, to not do it, then yes, it'll, it'll happen. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. It's funny that you draw the line in net stage A. I could also draw it at copyright law and notice and take down. Um, I mean, like, but I mean, I, I take your point. I think the net stage A is a great bright line moment um, that kind of people don't, don't kind of fully understand and appreciate like kind of how that turned the tide. Um, but yeah, no, you're completely, that's completely correct. Um, Deirdre is here. Oh, hi. Hey, friend. <laughs> um, it's great to see you. Um, you have some awesome questions, so go for it. Oh, yeah. Um, you were talking about the capability of Cybercom, and we've never really seen them unleashed you know, in a full way there. And I was basically wondering like, if they use their implants in either Ukrainian grid, the Russian grid, anywhere around there, uh, if they do what they can, what kind of collateral damage does it look like for Ukraine or any of the surrounding connected uh, networks or infrastructure in Europe? 
I have two questions. One, can you define CyberCom for the audience? And two, is that a very still dog sitting behind you over your no, shoulder? No, that's a pillow. Oh, and God. Okay, thank God. Is... I was like, what did you do to that dog? It is, like, not moving at all. Probably it's a pillow that was a dog. That would yeah. be you. It's a photograph of someone else's corgi, and, like, someone oh, gave it to us, and they turned it into a cute. A little eerie. <laughs> so scared of taxidermy for a moment. One of our actual corgis sees it sometimes and also thinks it's a dog and starts to growl at it. And I have to be like, it's fake. You've met this dog before. It's a fake dog. Um, <laughs> the is cyber Asking the heart and questions right right now. So yeah. um, which uh, General Nakasomi, uh, I, I think I get the name wrong, um, is in charge of, along with uh, the capabilities out of Fort Meade NSA, right? Yeah, so there's uh so Paul Nakasoni is a four-star general who has what's called the dual hat roles in which he is the head of the National Security Agency. NSA is an intelligence, a civilian intelligence agency that is in a defense support role to DOD. So it is part of DOD, but it is a combination of civilian employees and military employees. If you go give a talk at NSA, it's actually really weird in that you'll have like uniformed officers in like full dress. You'll have kids who were like 19 year olds in the Navy who were like, <laughs> I, I met one of them. I'm like, so how'd you join NSA? She's like, well, I grew up in Nebraska and I never saw the ocean and I wanted to see the world. Um, but then they gave me a math test and here I am working in, a basement. <laughs> in yeah. the bowels of Fort Meade <laughs> right, with no right. windows working in a windowless room, seeing the world uh, through a terminal. Right. And so you have like smart <laughs> enlisted kids who never expected to be there, but they did well in a math test uh, in the NSA. And then you have like dudes in Star Wars t-shirts who you look just like their te uh, techies, right? And so it's like um, a very weird mix. So that's NSA. And then Cyber Command is the uniform military of like the, the true offensive component. So NSA does hacking, but for the most part, NSA's hacking is supposed to be in support of their signals intelligence role. Like, so they will break into somebody's router. If you're trying to actually blow stuff up or you're trying to do hacking in support of military offensive operations that should be cyber command the relationship there is very close and i think on the unclassified side it is hard for us to tell the difference especially because yeah. paul nakasoni is in charge of all those he's also in charge of the central security service which i think nobody knows what that is it just sounds creepy so oh, no. anyway um yeah, yeah there's a whole nother logo on their on their sign at fort meade um that like it yeah nobody really knows what it means but anyway so like cyber command would be like the u.s military component it is like a combatant command. So it is part, it is the people who do offensive work who are actually uniform members of the military. Yep. Um, and the, uh, and even though they're, they do cyber stuff, they still have to do push-ups and everything. Um, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> really? It's kind of, it's kind of wild like that the dual hat thing came about because NSA offensive capability, exploit capability was just so far and away from anything that the, the previous equivalent of Cybercom had. So they basically were like, teach them how to do stuff. And like, we kind of need to kind of have this knowledge sharing thing, but yeah. they are the ones that deploy the attack because it's like an offensive cyber capability. And so that's kind of where the dual hat thing comes from sort of, and Alex can correct me. Yeah, and it's it's actually a common thing. People are talking about splitting the dual hat, that there should be a civilian head of NSA um, just for kind of traditional civilian control of the military purposes. Nakasone is incredibly powerful. Um, Right. Like uh, he, he was very powerful under the Trump administration because somehow he got Donald Trump to sign an executive order that basically allowed him to go hack anybody who was attacking the election. I don't think Trump knew what he was signing. Um, <laughs> and so like it was like a letter of Mark from like Queen Elizabeth that he could go and just 
go blow stuff up. Um, my understanding <laughs> is all that's been revoked and that President Biden has to sign off on attacks against foreign adversaries. Really? Oh, wow. They were just sort of like, okay, we're going to we're gonna do the, the president has to sign the nuclear deployment. Right, we're going to go and back has, to know, the president being in charge of the military. Yeah, like, and like signing off on drone strikes again, but for cyber. Right. Like, yeah. So wait, so, so to, yeah. to Deirdre's question about CyberCon, um, is there, is the, is the, what, what is like, I mean, essentially you're asking if like this really comes, if like, like the rubber meets the road, how much damage can it do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think there's a couple of things you might see out of U.S. cyber operations. One, it might be us punishing the Russians economically as part of a sanction regime, right? So I think you would see it. I don't think we'd see cyber by itself. We'd either see it as part of a sanctions regime where we're cutting off Russian banks from Fedwire and SWIFT and um, making it very difficult for them to move money around. And then also Russian banks just happen to have all their ATMs stop working and stuff like mm -hmm. that, right? So you might see like both a, a over and a covert capability used against the same targets. The other possibility is if the US gets involved militarily, I think what some people have talked about is the possibility of uh, of a no-fly zone, right? Like the the way the Russians could make this like a complete and total bloodbath would be if they moved to pretty much unrestricted bombing in the way they did in Syria, right? Um, and uh, people weren't really paying attention in Syria because like we've just basically ignored the deaths of Syrians for for years now. Um, but in Ukraine, like in Europe, uh, cities on fire uh, and and horrible like widespread destruction would could possibly lead to a NATO air defense kind of uh, no-fly zone. And so a situation like that, you've got American and NATO fighters going up against the Russian air defense system. And so you might see cyber command oper operations against the air defense system, which is actually something we saw in Syria. Um, that there are examples of kind of all of a sudden air defense systems stop working and such, um, which the expectation was that a lot of that was cyber capability, um, as well as other kinds of electronic warfare. I mean, there's all this stuff in the middle where it's like you have a cyber capability, but it's deployed in a pod that's underneath the wing of an F-16, stuff like that. So... Um, yeah, the, uh, uh, there's. I think there's a couple of different options, but I think it will be deployed as part of an overall package of how are we punishing the Russians and how are we trying to deter them from further action, um, not by itself. Can, can, can I can I throw out a theory here, which is complete? It's perfectly in line with what you said, which is that I feel like. Weak states and strong states use cyber capabilities in very different ways. For strong states, cyber weapons are one more tool in the arsenal. Whereas weak, whereas weak states, like all they got basically is cyber. And, 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 and so like you're not going to see like weak, weak states DDoS strong states invade. And the weird thing is, is that like for Russia, Russia is obviously very strong in relationship to Ukraine, but it's actually very weak in the wider geopolitical context. And it, 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 it's, it's not clear which one, it, where it is. And so like, I, 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 that's why I'm so skeptical when I hear about like their cyber attacks, therefore this is the prelude to Russia invading it's just that like this is precisely how a weak state would respond whereas if a, like the strong state like well like we'll, we'll, the cyber command is not going to be unleashed on on russia like we'll cut them off from the swift banking system we'll like um uh we'll engage in 
lots of other kinds of activities, um, but like the cyber would just be one aspect of it. No, I think you're right. I mean, you're right. Like at a basic level, cyber is a something that provides a huge amount of asymmetry that uh, that helps. I'm sorry, I should say it the other way. Cyber helps bridge the asymmetry between small states and their superpowers, right? Um, that is one of the reasons that countries have invested in seriously is because the industrial base is so much smaller, right? Like I, I, it's I, I, really, yeah. Can I disagree sorry. with that? So the point, my point is, is that it's not that weak, as weak states have leveraged cyber weapons to become strong. They just have this tool that they can use to harass um, it's what James Scott, the great Yale political scientist, would call a weapon of the weak. It's a form of resistance to what they think is an unjust power arrangement. Um, but it doesn't actually level the playing field because you really can't fight a war just on cyber. Right. That, that was the well, point. Yeah. I, so I think it provides an asymmetry. It, it helps... It helps with asymmetry. You're right. You can't fight a war just on cyber. But one of the benefits of cyber is that just like a the things that happen on a normal Tuesday in the cyber world would be considered active wars in any other context, right? And so like the bar of what is considered an active war is so incredibly high in the cyber arena that um, you that like all of these states have all of this freedom of action that don't exist in any other situation in which they would be instantly crushed by their neighbors. Right. So I think that that is part of the reason they've invested in cyber. Another reason is unlike some of these other capabilities, cyber can provide like a short-term economic benefit, right? Like having a bunch of tanks does not help you compete against the Taiwanese semiconductor industry. Right. But having a big offensive capability means that catching up with TSMC becomes something that's a little more possible. Right. And so I think that's another reason there's an invention. Um, you know, when we think about Russia, one of the things we have to remember is Russia, one of the reasons Russia has such good cyber capabilities is they use it all the time, right? And um, this is one of the interesting differences, like one of the great ironies of the post-Cold War world is that people who hack on behalf of the United States are socialists and people who hack on behalf of China and Russia are capitalists, right? That what what's happened is that those countries have created economic infrastructures in which you have people who are every single day hacking the West and they're getting paid for it. They're either getting paid by states, they're they're making money through direct transfers to themselves through things like ransomware, or they're working on behalf of their domestic industries. The domestic industry is a big part of China, is that there's like a whole cottage industry of I can hack on behalf of Chinese industrial giants and the government will look the other way slash help me out. And then I get paid directly by the industrial giant. And so this has actually created an interesting situation where their hackers are quite good because they are doing it every single day, right? And that's one of my fears, actually, if I was at Cyber Command, one of the things I'd be afraid of is they've got a lot of money, right? Like U.S. Cyber Command and NSA put together have way more budget and way more people than probably all the other offensive cyber units in the world outside of China. China has something like 150,000 people who work on cyber for the PLA, right? So, like, there's China, the U.S., and then everybody else. And um, But one of the things I'd be afraid of is that, like, people who work at NSA aren't allowed just to hack like Russian banks all the time and plant ransomware and get good at it and learn about like, what are the techniques that work right now? And, and, and so like, it, it is an interesting question of what our capabilities look like in a real kind of conflict, because we don't get to take them out for a walk all the time in the same way that Russian and China operations do. I love that line. 
And yeah. I think that Scott did too. <laughs> You're right. We're really, I, 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 I've been saying that we're falling behind in ransomware. We cannot so. allow a ransomware gap to exist. <laughs> oh man, that is like a dark. Anyway, so like, um, I've been trying to get Mateo on for like, um, I've been trying to get Mateo on. Um, who is our resident like eighteen year old? I'm making fun of you, Mateo. I know you're not eighteen. Um, but he is in college. Uh, I, saw, and, I, I um, just saw. I just saw him uh, like uh, yesterday. He's at Yale, the, uh, so he occasionally comes to Scott. Yeah, <laughs> I'm on the street. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, but he has a bunch of great questions, so I'm going to ask his first one, which is: Do you have any rough suggestions about how we might update the rules of war for a conflict that involves cyber alongside traditional kinetic attacks? Uh, that is kind of a Scott and. Alex question. And so we might be able to spend the next nine minutes just kind of talking about that. But maybe, I mean, people have been trying to do this for a long time. There's just so, I mean, autonomous weapon systems to begin with. Uh, and then like, I, I mean, I just, I don't even know how, I mean, it was, I don't know how you moving down from autonomous weapon systems, how you then move that into like cyber war and all of the other things that we're talking about, like ransomware. Um, but go ahead, Alex, any thoughts? Um, I mean, I think autonomous is actually an interesting area to have rules both in the kinetic world about yeah. not not having drones that are allowed to make decisions on their own to kill people um, is, you know, not to have states releasing uh, kind of state quality malware that acts autonomously without a command and control, right? And so that's, that's the exact thing that happened with NotPetya, is the exact thing that happened with WannaCry is it caused a huge amount of damage. The interesting question is, is can you write a rule that catches not Petya and WannaCry and does not catch Stuxnet, right? So one of the ways you can tell that Stuxnet is a American uh, gig is that it's clearly a piece of malware that was written by lawyers, right? That like it has so many tests to make sure it doesn't cause any collateral damage. And so like, could you could you come up with a structure where a Stuxnet, which do, did infect millions of machines indiscriminately, but then only cause damage to a very specific set of systems. And in doing so, pro hopefully foreclose the possibility of an American airstrikes on Iran that would cause all, all of this death and destruction. Um, and then your rules would not catch that, but it would catch NotPetya going out there and shutting down one of the largest shipping lines in the in the world, right? And I, I don't know if you can write those rules. Somebody, some, you know, somebody like a Scott would have to figure that out. Uh, but I, I, that's where I would start is on the the autonomous stuff that like, we should be letting this stuff just go out into the world um, and blow stuff up. Actually, like I got to play this, uh, the last Munich security conference between before COVID um, there was a war game and uh, in the war game, John Demers was sitting next to me and playing America. And then the ex head of the GRU was sitting across from me and he was playing Russia, uh, which this was an interesting entry on my SF 86 of like, have you ever met a agent of a foreign government? Well, the head of the GRU. Um, <laughs> and, and so um, I was playing- We played a giant game of Risk. <laughs> yeah, it was effectively a giant game of Risk. And my part was I played the American tech industry. So I was basically Brad Smith, right? And so these guys, like in this war game, it was, it was basically, there's this escalation where things got worse and worse on the cyber world. And then I jumped up and I said, hey, by the way, to all of my, my the Western countries in which I, Microsoft, operate, um, I just want to let you know, 
I've now heard, I've been taking score, you have released something like 12 to 15 O'Days on the world market that will now be used against uh, Western interests for the next several years, right? So like, there definitely is a cost in the use of these weapons in that the difference between cyber and something else is like, if somebody shoots a bullet at you and misses, you can't pick up the bullet and throw it at the guy. But if somebody shoots a cyber <laughs> weapon at you, if they utilize like an exploit, then they can absolutely turn around and then use, utilize that against their enemies or your interests. And so oh like- That, that is, is like such a great, that is like, su that just kind of blew my mind a little bit. And I mean, well, it actually kind of quite frankly reminds me of landmines and like the prolific, like how landmines sit around and actually fuck the country that like planted yeah. them in the first place, right? Yeah, well, yeah, but the, this is like the landmines go to the United States. Um, like, so not, you know, um, take, take, uh, WannaCry. That's, uh, that eternal blue. That's an NSA and double pulsar. Those, these are NSA exploits, uh, made in the USA. Um, so, um, we are, we are, um, that, that's like a real example. Um, may, may I just like speak for 60 seconds? So, cause like the whole, my whole, transition into cybersecurity was was really because I had written this book with Ona Hathaway about the history of the laws of war from like the 1600 from letters of Mark um, all the way up to 2014, the annexation of Crimea. And people were kept on saying, well, what about cyber war? What about cyber war? And then despite the fact, the fact that I had this um, computer science background, it turned out that I didn't know anything. All right, there we go. The internationalists, um, and so can I? So thank you, KK. Um, so um, um, I, I um, so can I? Can I? Can, can, let me just say just a little bit um, in uh, in reaction to what you were saying, Alex. Um, so lawyers typically distinguish between what's called use ad bellum, the right to go to war, and then use in bellum, that is the rights in war. So what you were talking about is like, what kinds of weapons can you use um, in war? What kind of cyber weapons could you use in war? That's a use in bellum, uh, use in bellow um, uh, question. Um, but another question is at what, like when is the use of cyber weapons itself an act of war, which is illegal? And, and, and that is something that um, has been um, really fraught in part because the UN, the United Nations Charter, which sets out the prohibition, prohibits member states from engaging in the threat or use of force. And then you have to decide, and then uh, your states are allowed to respond if there's an armed attack. And so the question becomes, how should you think about cyber weapons that DDoS, like, is that a use of force? Is this an armed attack? Is my, I, I can just, I'll just state my own view. My own view is that like the laws of war were created really to deal with kinetic war. Um, and so therefore anytime cyber weapons actually um, um, affect um, oh, kind of like kinetic damage in, in the way of like that Stuxnet did, that counts as a threat of use of force in the kind of traditional sense, because who cares if you did it with a bomb, who cares if you did it with uh, zeros and ones, still the same result. What I think is really fascinating, and I think that this is the unanswered question going forward, which is that like the, what's interesting about cyber weapons is not that they can do what bombs used to be able to do. What I think is so fascinating about them is that they can do what bombs could never do. 
which is really just affect information. And that is the that is something that like when you mentioned the difference between the SVR and the GRU, I, 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 that one's a scalpel, the other one's a sledgehammer. I was thinking about the DNC, the DNC hacks. Cozy Bear was the SV, uh, SVR. They just took the information and kept it, whereas the GRU, Fancy Bear, they came in and they then they released it. And we don't yet know how to deal with attacks, not just on physical security, but on information security. So anyway, I think that that's like the, 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 a, a, a big question going forward in terms of applying cyber war to um, the traditional framework of the laws of war. I'm sorry to have gone on. No, no, like, I think that's great. I, really great. <laughs> I, I think the one thing I'd add is from my perspective, I, one of the things I, I don't want to get lost is that the use of cyber operations in many cases might be the more ethical and moral use than getting the same goal through traditional military operations, right? Like like you said, cyber can do things that others can't. There's not a lot of ways that you could break all of these centrifuges in Iran without killing a lot of people, right? And so, like, like was Stuxnet, if you're the president of the United States and you've got Air Force saying, we're ready, sir, we're going to bomb the crap out of them, you know, you've, uh, we're, we're going, we've got this whole plan of a 50-day air war, and how we're going to you know, establish dominance, but it means that we have to bomb all these SAM sites and we have to attack their electrical grid and that all these people are going to die. But by the way, there's going to be a radioactive cloud over Iran. And you've got Nakasone in the corner saying, sir, I gotta, I've got an idea. How about you just let my nerds take care of it, right? Mm. Like the only ethical decision, moral decision by Obama in that case is to point and say like, we'll try the nerds first, right? Right, right, right. right. All, I, all, all I would just simply say about... Um, about that is that I would hope that the rules that anyone came up with applied both to Stuxnet and not Petya. Um, you know, it is a feature of the United States in our history that we're the first ones to use the weapon and then we, then we declare it illegal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. the, <laughs> nuclear bombs, yeah. the atomic bombs. Um, Stuxnet, I think, my, I will just speak, I think most international lawyers think that that was like, a violation of Article 2.4. It destroyed over a thousand centrifuges. There was physical destruction. There wasn't loss of life. You're absolutely right about that. But I think I think we would want, at least I, my intuitions are that that was an act of war. And since it was the first time, no one, <laughs> no one knew what to do. Mm -hmm. It was whether we should do it or not do it is a second, it, 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 it is a, a different question from what you were addressing, and I think you're absolutely right, that if we were gonna do something, that was the best thing to do. Can I just really quickly interject? Is it like where I don't understand that this stays in any way, if this is the future of warfare, if we're going to be talking about cyber warfare and the idea that it can do things that bombs can't do, uh, what is to keep the people that have this type of, what are the key people that are working for Putin, working for Putin? Like and not becoming rogue agents that all I mean they already I mean obviously already people do this with ransomware all the time but mm -hmm. if they have the full like ability as you said like you can pick up the bullet and throw it at another person and they're the people with the full capacity of like something like Russia developing these technologies what is to stop them from just taking these 
and being like, it's my fucking football. I'm going home. And like, or taking the football and spiking it, you know, against Putin himself. I mean, like, there, like it does seem that there might be these types of like, I mean, to, not to like talk about the chaos ladder, but kind of the chaos ladder. That is totally a problem. Hey, I don't think about that in Russia so much because Russia has like an explicit model here of you are allowed to work within these frameworks and you have your uncle who's giving you protection. And so your uncle knows who you are. I worry more about like India and Pakistan, countries like that, where yes. patriotic hackers are completely outside of the command and control, right? Yeah. And so, um, plus like, like I, I don't see, like Russia, Putin's doing this around Ukraine, not because he's got like a groundswell of Russians saying that he should, right? But you could totally see a escalating conflict between India and Pakistan, where the citizens of the country are way ahead of the leaders, right? On what they think is appropriate. And that patriotic hackers will be able to will, will be able to trip off things because they're not under that command and control. So I, I worry less about Russia and China because in the Russian Chinese case, my feeling is that the, the state security services have a pretty good idea of who's doing these things, right? Um, if just because, especially in the Russian case, they're all getting uh, they're all getting kickbacks up and down. Like this is, you know, being an FSB agent doesn't pay for a really nice place, I'm guessing, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, in those cases, like their ability to control and the downsides for you are pretty high. I, um, I dealt with this when I was at, I got to Yahoo and it turns out before I even got there that there had been an FSB team had breaking in and they're not full-time employees of the FSB. It was actually run by a guy who's not Russian, Alexei Balon, but he was moved to Russia and he was caught by the FSB hacking and he was given an option of he could work for them or he could live out his life in a concrete box. He chose <laughs> door A. Um, and so his team would do economically uh, you know, goals. But then while they were breaking the companies, they would also go do things like look for the emails uh, accounts of the heads of the Kazakh oil company and such. Right. Um, and when he was he made the mistake, you know, Russians like to go on vacation in Greece and Cyprus to go visit their money and to go where it's not snowy. And so he went to Greece. He gets picked up on the Interpol warrant. Um, and uh, I heard this story from an FBI agent. There's a jet flying because he's like on the top 10 most wanted, at least for the cyber division. There's a jet, a DOJ jet on its way to go argue for extradition. The legat in Athens is like totally engaged. And a Greek judge takes his passport and lets him out on wow. you know bail and then he disappears probably into a russian yacht in piraeus um wow. uh yeah and so that, that judge is either dead or has a dacha on the black sea now i'm not sure but uh, <laughs> right so but that's because he had cover right he had yeah. an uncle that like his one phone call was not to like get who's the better call stall of yeah, right. it was definitely <laughs> uncle, right yeah i just want to say that like everything is connected this like brings home the point that like kinetic if like until until we're all everything is kinetic war like there is always like that, that kinetic war will trump everything and like everything is meat space eventually like as i like to say um even though no one ever describes it as meat space and people sometimes wince when i say it <laughs> like you are right now alex you're like i don't like that term but like i don't know it's a nice contrast to like the term cyberspace it really makes people kind of realize that like it's all just humans behind these machines and behind these things and at the end of the day people don't like to die and don't like it when their loved ones die or are locked in concrete boxes so yeah um, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that this hour went by so fast. It was awesome. This was like a like a masterclass. 
um, by both of you, like, but I mean, Scott too, like, I mean, this was just so fun. Um, and I'm so glad that you could join Scott and, and slightly cheaper than attending Yale and Stanford. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm on scholarship at St. John's. So like, hopefully <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, I don't know when we'll, oh, we'll be back on Friday. It's Wednesday today. Uh, we'll be back on Friday. Um, I don't know if we have a guest yet. Uh, do we have a guest? Um, no, I think it's going to be a cheese knife, but who knows? Um, Alex, this was, uh, really, really, really great. Um, welcome back anytime. And, uh, yeah, let's just be in touch and uh, as things kind of progress and uh, it would be wonderful to have you on to kind of update us and continue the conversation. So, awesome. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Bye, guys. See you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.